So, dude, you, you broke Facebook. I broke the internet. You broke the internet again. Hi, I'm George Tekmachev with Steve the Big Cat Anderson, and we're back for Easton Podcast number 30... I don't know. Three? Season two, episode two. Okay, yeah, season two, episode two. We could look at it that way. Hey, um, we've got your Facebook questions to answer today. We've also got some more of your of your mail questions to answer today, so we're going to focus on that for the next 40, 45 minutes or so. But, uh, Steve, you're just back from Ohio. Yeah. Pretty good event. It's the best USAT tournament I've ever been to. Wow, that's saying a lot. Or, or not or much. It just means the bar was set low. Yeah. No, nah, it was good. It was good. Let's, um, let's give perspective here, okay? Yeah. I mean, I've been to a lot of a lot of tournaments, and some of the USAT tournaments I've been to have been the best tournaments I've been to, and some mm-hmm. of the USAT tournaments I've been to have been some of the absolute poorest run events I've been to. Yep. So, um, generally speaking, it's really easy to sit back and complain about how tournaments run. And mostly people don't talk much when one's done right. And this one was done right. Yeah. The Buckeye Classic. Yeah, everything from location, scheduling, um, all of that was was really good. Yeah. And, you know, that's um, partly because you had some experienced people running the thing. Yeah. That's helpful. Yeah, that does help. I know you don't know some of these folks, but Jason Pfister is a guy I used to shoot with 25 years ago. And he helped run this thing with Ace Archers out of Cincinnati or, uh, yeah, or Columbus like or somewhere. Columbus. Columbus. I think, uh, I think uh, the McLaughlins helped with that a little well, bit. Well, there you go. So quality people means a quality event. Yeah. And uh, hats off to, uh, to the Buckeye Classic for, for what is reportedly and universally acknowledged as a very good USAT tournament. Um, you didn't podium. No. I, you didn't practice I, much either for the last month. And no, I didn't shoot since uh, USA Nationals, so I had about 100 arrows in me going into it. Yeah. And, eh, I, I felt, you know, I actually improved on my ranking from my worst use out of the year, so you keep your best three of four, and uh, I improved on that one, which I was pretty happy to do that with literally no work put in. Yeah, that's solid. So, Nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it was, it was fine. It was a fine event. I'd already sealed up a spot on the team for 2017, so I didn't need to go and break my back trying to get ready for it you know what's remarkable to me is um you know guys like brady coming out after all the pressure of rio you'd think oh man the last thing i want to do is pick up a bow i want to just go off with um toya and have a vacation or something but no he came out there and and he did well yeah according to mel he wouldn't have been there except toya made him go so okay (laughs) well all right then i mean realistically you look at it for brady it's it's almost free money yeah, as well as he's shooting right now, who's going to touch him? Yeah, why, why, why let off the throttle right this yeah. moment? As long as you're, as long as the fire's still burning, which I'm sure it is. Oh yeah, you know one of the things about uh, winning a bronze medal, it's uh, it's the hardest medal to win, I think, and I think he's maybe even more, you know, inspired now. Yeah, maybe. So, all right, so uh, good event in Ohio, except uh, as usual the NAA. Had a big weather delay. Yeah, nothing you can do about that, yeah. I suppose. Except put it in places without crappy weather, but yeah. that's a separate issue. You know, it wasn't bad, though. They they were only delayed, I think, an hour, maybe two, and they got to finish. So it's a lot better than a lot of the weather delays we've experienced. All right, we've got uh, – let's just jump into the questions because we've got so many of them that it'll probably flesh out the rest of the of this particular episode. Matt Zolman, why has the Facebook face uh, Facebook name not changed yet? And I had the satisfaction of telling Matt an hour later that it did because you got it done. Got it done. But you did break the internet doing it. Broke the internet doing it. Okay. For what you. We're, what we're driving at is, yeah, at least for me and I'm sure for some others, if you had the Easton Archery Target Facebook bookmarked, that bookmark is probably broken now because Facebook sucks. And now you need to just seek out Easton Target Archery, which is what most people would think to do, I would think. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, Easton Target Archery is the name now on the uh, Facebook page. And uh, we dropped uh, a note that mentioned that we are going to record another podcast, and you folks kept the uh, questions coming in. We've also got more leftover questions from the uh, podcast at EastonTP.com email address for the show, which yep. continues to be the, the easy way to get in touch with us if you don't want to deal with the hell on earth that I consider Facebook to be. <laughs> um, so... Uh, Jim 
Padilla is asking, when is Easton going to make a high-end, small-diameter, all-carbon target arrow? Heard good things about the Easton Carbon ones. Well, we've been making AC arrows for a long time, and they're still superior to all-carbon arrows. And until we can build a high-end, all-carbon target arrow that's at least as good as what we can make now, um, the incentive is not really there. Uh, it's just there's so many things that that aluminum cord does that you don't have any idea solves. It is it is just a big difference from the standpoint of performance. And so it isn't broke. I'm not saying we're not working on something. We're always working on something. Mm-hmm. But it's got to be at least as good or better. And yeah. nobody can make one, no one can make one in all carbon that is as good right now. Yeah, you're going to have a hard time with an all-carbon arrow, number one, meeting the straightness, number two, meeting uh, end wobble like our uh, our aluminum core arrows do. And that's that's not even touching on spine around shaft and spine consistency. And weight consistency yeah. versus spine and just, yeah. So um, when are we going to do it? We're going to do it when it's good. We're going to do it when it's good enough to have Easton on it. That's That's your answer, Jim, and thank you for the question. Uh, what's your Chad Simpson's asking? What's your opinion on an FOC specifically for target arrows? Must resist urge to give my alternate meaning to the acronym FOC. <laughs> it might uh, change the explicit nature. Effing of our... overcomplicated. Oh, okay. Yeah, Does that, I'm work? A... Does that work? Yeah. See, I've been in Utah long enough that I've been able to switch off the uh, the vulgarity. <laughs> I don't always notice that switch that, that it's actually working. Yeah, okay. All right. So and, yeah. and in podcast. No, okay. So seriously, because it's a good question, actually. Yeah. What's my opinion on FOC? Uh, I'll answer for recurve, and 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 Steve will answer for compound because you didn't specify Chad, but you did ask specifically for target arrows. Basically, we've done the work for you. If you select an Easton point and you look in the catalog and you look at what points recommended for a specific Easton shaft, that's going to get you into a workable front of center balance now what is front of center balance let's 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 answer that because some folks might be going what's he talking about foc right front of center balance is simply how much far in front of the geometric center of the arrow does the arrow balance if it were behind the geometric center of the arrow the arrow would need much 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 bigger fletching to stay stable and it wouldn't fly as far or as accurately and the case of arrows with too much FOC, that is super heavy point and really light shaft, they'll take a nosedive past about 50 meters if you're shooting 70, become very critical vertically. And so there's an ideal amount of FOC. And there's other factors besides FOC in terms of how an arrow performs downrange. Things like how much is it surfing as it leaves the bow? It's actually generating a little bit of lift. Things like what's going on with crosswind drift, fletching size, rotation rate. Um, just the effect on spine of the arrow from the presence of the heavier or lighter point. So it's a complicated thing, but hence my joke about it meaning effing overcomplicated. But the reality is, if you're working somewhere between 10 and 14, 15%, you're in a ballpark that's going to work. And you're not good enough. I'm not good enough. Steve's not good enough. Uh, Ojin Hook's not good enough. To really tell you, yeah, there's a big difference in performance between 11 and 13. It's just not there. So don't overcomplicate it. That's my answer on a recurve side. How do you feel about this? Um, I have seen where at times a lot of FOC was good and a lot was bad. So it's a simple trial and error type thing. You know, I've, I've had indoor shafts that. I added 50 grains of point weight, and they really came alive. Um, Which has nothing to do with wind performance. It has everything to do with tuning as much as anything else. Yes, and instead of tuning the bow, I basically tuned the arrow. Tuned the arrow to the bow yeah. versus the other way around. So I've also had you know, shafts I shot for outdoor 3D where I pulled 40 grains off. I went from 120 to 80 grain points, and at that point they really came alive. Probably, again, you know, similar type thing is just help the arrow get a little bit better match to the bow. Um, but, you know, it can help have those downrange ballistics. There's too much going on for me to say how or why. I just at times have gone, this works and this didn't. So it kind of goes back to my call your shot 
uh, bow setup. You know, you go to the furthest distance where you can shoot one and say, all right, that should be a 10 at 9 o'clock. And then you check it, and it is or it's not. You know, and then, then you're shooting your, your groups and trying to figure out what exactly is, is working well versus what's opening up a little more and giving you something you didn't expect. Now, to be honest, that's, that's not a scientific approach. No, 100%. It's, it's as much as anything else, it's a judgment-based approach. Yep. And that's kind of, I mean, that's how I want to go about it because I want, if I say, okay, it should be a, that arrow, I shot it, it should be a 10 at 9 o'clock, and it's a 10 at 9 o'clock, well, isn't that great? I got exactly what I wanted out of it, you know? I aimed it there, I shot it there, it went there. See, I like the philosophy of not applying too much thinking to this. That's, that's not a bad way to be. Yeah, with, with FOC and stuff like that, you really... You can overthink it. Which comes back full circle to what I opened with. Right, yeah. F and I mean, overcomplicated. Yeah, so I try not to worry about it. If you if you want to test some different weights, that's really all you can do. I don't yeah. think you can model it in a so computer. So I'll, I'll tell you a story. I'll tell you a story that's related to this. Um, working with Takahara Furukawa, uh, the Japanese silver medalist of the London Olympic Games, um, working with him over in Japan, and then again here in Salt Lake City, in Japan, um, he was testing 140 grain tungsten points, and the way he did that was he took breakoffs from other tungsten points and added them so that he had a total weight of 140 grains. And he thought, "Wow, that's that's great. That really is working well for me." And then he started shooting them, and under pressure, what he was finding was that he was getting unforgiving results. He was a little like what Steve was alluding to. He was shooting what felt like a 10, low eight. He was getting highs and lows, and he said, you know what, when I was shooting well, they were really, really good, but boy, it was critical if I wasn't dead on. Um, you know, and, and I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially the message there. 120 is what um, some of the gentlemen are shooting. 100 grains is what some of the ladies are shooting. Stick with the recommendations on the chart, and you'll save yourself a lot of time and trouble. Now, Chad's got an auxiliary to his question here, which is a good one. Also, do you have any rules of thumb for the types and size of vein to use for certain size shafts, or is it all trial and error? Yeah, I've got a rule of thumb, but it really is ac- application-based. How about you? I just always say you know, the bigger the shaft diameter, the bigger the vein. Presuming, the, of course, that the shaft is the shaft diameter is related to what you're using it for. I mean, you're not going to be shooting a 90-meter distance with a 23-size arrow if you have a choice. Right. Yeah. So that's what I'm driving at. If you're shooting indoors, let's say you're shooting your World Archery Maximum 23 diameter X7s indoors. Heck, I'm going to go for four or five inch feathers if I get good clearance. Yeah, I use a four inch vein. And yeah, it's kind of a, the the rule, like I said, the rule of thumb for me, the, the bigger the diameter, the more vein you need. And I never, ever like to see anything 23 diameter or above with a low profile two inch vein. You know, if it's if it's twenty three diameter or above, I want something that would steer a broadhead for hunting. So I'm talking like a three inch vein minimum. Um, as you get up into like the twenty fives or twenty sevens for those three D guys, you know, something like a AE Max Hunter high profile, you know, point five two tall, two inch vein, something like that works really well. So now outdoors, um, you want to use the least vein that is still giving you some degree of forgiveness. Right. And that means that, uh, you know, if you're getting flyers because your veins are too small or have too little drag, you probably need to think about going to a slightly bigger vein, even though it's going to cost you a little bit in velocity yeah. and maybe wind drift. And what, what you can see is, you know, at certain distance, um, you'll have an opening and a closing of, of the group. Too big of a vein and it'll open up. Uh, too small of a vein and it'll open up as well so somewhere in between you will find yeah that but for example if you've got if you've got really tight groups at 30 and your groups are huge at 70 that's a good clue that you know what your veins might be causing the arrow to parachute as it gets down yeah getting a little too much vein yep so probably your best bet is take a look at someone like jesse broadwater and just do what he does for the compound side (laughs) yeah for recurve i'm interested personally in knowing you know at 20 yards with an arrow as much bend as they get coming out of a recurve, is it advantageous to use a larger vein or feather out of a, a recurve? Like, say you're using X10s. Unless you're Korean. 
<laughs> yeah, say you're using X tens indoors. Like the Koreans? Yeah. Like like most high end recurve. Yeah, Brady, shooters. for example. Yeah. Too. Do you want to go with like a three inch feather or something like that or stick with your spin wings? Everybody I've seen that's one at a place like Neem or World Indoor using X tens indoors are shooting their outdoor fletching, which yeah, is a same little bit thing. disconcerting, but it's reality. You know, if you can shoot a 10 at 70 meters, you can shoot a 10 at 18. Right. And these people are at a level, though, that doesn't require that level of forgiveness. I'd say for the great unwashed among us, including me, I'm going to go for a two or three inch feather on that arrow. Yeah, just to get just it to steering give me a, a little, little bit quicker. of a break. Yeah. Right. Okay. A little bit. But with that said, um, Chad, thanks for those good questions. The, uh, uh, yeah, next one up. You got see. one picked? We yeah, got, I got, got one bunch, here. By the way, thank you for that, folks. Uh, from David Krulicki. Okay. says, what is the best way to identify the spine of the shaft where the material is joined together? It would be slightly stiffer and have yet to find a marked indicator on shafts to identify the location. Uh, then I can rotate the knock accordingly to get a good tune. So, I have a cheeky answer for you, uh, David. Yeah, we, we buy some shafts that don't need that crap. <laughs> well, we've talked about it. It's a we have. there's there are some companies who indicate you know the stiff side, which is a great way to market a bad construction with all joking aside not every arrow even the ones that you know are are super high end from any manufacturer are are perfect but um it's it is folly to try to sell a consumer something that's a flaw as a feature yeah you know i don't i don't like that idea my personal philosophy as the guy in charge of the target archery products for this company is don't sell products that need that kind of a Band-Aid, mm-hmm. right? Don't make stuff that requires that kind of a thing. And then consumers don't have to worry about these things. But David, uh, the subtext of David's question is he, he believes that this needs to be done. The answer is mm, some of them probably do out there, some products out there. But... Um, you know, the, the best way to identify whether your arrow has a high side or a low side is with a calibrated spine tester. And that's the, the quick and easy answer. The other answer is go out there and, and, you know, if you're shooting a recurve, go shoot bear shafts. Yeah. And See, then and rotate I, yeah. knocks until they all come together. And I would say, yeah, knock indexing is important. I, I'm amazed at the, the people who per, portray themselves as a high-level coach who don't realize that you're supposed to knock index still. And it's not because of spine necessarily. Right. It has to do with other dynamics. Like yeah, there's knock-in knock. straightness could yeah. be the knock itself. There's a bunch of dynamics going right. on when you shoot an arrow. Yeah, if you knock index, that'll help bring bear shafts all together. And for a compound shooter, uh, I know we've talked about this before, but if you're concerned with that, um, shoot all your bear shafts through paper until you get the similar tear. Robert ro- Rankin. Rotate knocks until you get similar tear. Rotate knocks until you get similar tear. Anything else to add to this? Nay. Okay, question from Robert here. Uh, can you explain the USAT qualifying procedures briefly? No. <laughs> briefly? No. Quite frankly, um, they're in flux. <laughs> they're all fluxed up. And, <laughs> and it's not easy to explain briefly because there's a ton of, of – of, I mean, there's formulas in there that are yeah. hard to explain. I could give the quick and dirty, which is – Quick and dirty. You know, if you take 100% of your USAT ranking, 20% of that comes from your arrow average on elimination day. 40% comes from your placement on elimination day. And 40% comes from your qualification rank on qualification day. Okay. That's how it works. The How the numbers are calculated, I don't exactly know. Um, I'll bet it's an awesome spreadsheet somewhere. Yeah. I have, I have no – well, I do know, actually. If you get a 1, you get 0.4 on qualification. If you get a 1 in eliminations, you get another 0.4. And if, if you – because it's 40% of I know. One. I'm just thinking this is going way, way too deep. Bro. Yeah. If you, get a, if you get a 1 for having the highest arrow average, you get a 0.2, and your total would be 1. You know what I'll bet? I'll bet that the real essence of the question here is Robert wants to know, um, you know, the year-end rankings from this past weekend count toward next year's world team, or is he going to have to qualify in 2017 before the rounds start to make the team? The answer is, Robert, you make the team off how you perform this year. Yeah, so next year's team is selected Next year's already. team is a done deal. It's done, yep. Done deal. You're going to have to work next year to make the following year's team. 
Yeah, there, there's a re-ranking in the middle there somewhere yeah. and blah, blah, blah. But your rankings carry over. So, you know, next year when we shoot Arizona Cup, it'll replace Arizona Cup 2016. Right, right. So everything, use, everything shakes out after one year. Yeah. So, so yeah. Uh, Robert, you got to plan early. Yeah, you're, you got to be a year ahead. Yep. Shannon um, Turner is asking, what's the advantage of the Contour CS stabilizers over more conventional stabilizers? Uh, and he names a few other than reduced wind resistance because of the smaller profile. They look really cool. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right, so um, the main advantage of the Contour CS is it's comfortable without having to use a rubber damper on it. Yeah, I, w- I would say it's just sheer weight advantage. That is a very lightweight stabilizer. Super lightweight. Yeah, you compare it to some of the others, and they're not even close. Yeah, it's super lightweight. So the main advantage, as Steve just pointed to, is it's super lightweight, super small diameter out of the far end where it matters, and um, I like it because it's naturally, um, it's it feels good. Yeah, it has damping Without having to throw a bunch of rubber on it. Yeah. Now, to be sure, um, all the Russian women were shooting it at Rio, and they all, I think, all had rubber dampers on Yeah, them. I think they took their weights and, and right off their old ones. Furukawa does the same thing. He just throws yeah. rubber dampers. Most people, when they're used to something, they'll just keep it, right? right. They don't try it without it. I shoot without it. I shoot without dampers. Yeah. So that's why I like it. But, uh, you know, and the other, the other advantage, of course, is that um, you, you get yourself a, uh, a very high-quality product. Yeah, the, uh, the large diameter base is really the key here. I mean, that's where all the vibration starts through the, through the stabilizer and yeah. all the oscillation starts there. So if you can soak that up with an extremely stiff large diameter base, taper it down to the micro diameter distal end, well, see that All tapering it down is what makes it actually work. You're 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 interfering with the vibration transmission through okay. that transition. Yeah, and that's actually one of the secrets of, of why that thing works the way it does. So that makes sense. Yeah. Um, Sterling Schroeder wants to know: Is it possible to cut arrow shafts without using a cutting machine? Uh, Sterling would like to try building his own arrows, but the purpose-made cutting machines are out of his price range at the moment. Sterling, um, I, I feel you. That's. Uh, you know, a problem because to buy a saw, a cutoff saw, a dedicated one that's of any good quality, looking at about a, a Benji, about a hundred dollars. Yeah, I remember seeing them a few years ago from Apple. You know, a, a yeah, Cabela's almost no features, some reasonable yeah. ones, but they, they were got like nothing 90. on. Them. So here's what here's what I would suggest you do: get yourself a C clamp and a Dremel tool, and a cutting wheel on the Dremel tool. Because here's the deal: you're going to cut one set of arrows. Now, if you're planning to cut dozens of arrows. Yeah, maybe go save some lunch money for a while and go buy a real saw. Yeah, but if you're looking at if you don't own the Dremel tool, well, but if you can buy a Dremel tool for thirty dollars. Eh, I'm, I'm I'm actually shopping those right now. You could buy one for thirty bucks. Not a good one. I didn't say a good one. <laughs> one that's good enough to cut a dozen arrows. Yeah, I, I would cut them first about a half inch long. Yeah. <laughs> See how that worked out. <laughs> okay, I won't argue the point. Anyway, where there's a will, there's a way. Here's what not to do: do not use on a carbon arrow. Do not use pipe cutters. Do not use hacksaws. You need a high-speed abrasive cutting wheel to cut through yeah. carbon arrows. I have seen a Dremel tool set up where, the, uh, like you said, the Dremel was clamped down, and then someone had devised a you know a simple rolling vise to move the arrow shaft into the the wheel. So yeah. that and at you know thirty thousand plus RPM, it's certainly going to get the job. But look, done. Shannon, unless you're out, or sorry, it's Sterling. Unless you're out there in the middle of Alaska or something, you're going to find a shop somewhere in a reasonable distance that's got a saw. So I'd, I would actually look into that, potentially uh, getting getting a shop to allow you to cut your arrows at a nominal fee. If, you can't, if, you, if you're not willing to jimmy something up using a Dremel tool or don't want to spend the money on a Dremel tool, just don't try something like a pipe cutter or, a, you know. No hand tools. No hand tools, okay? Uh, let's see here. Guy, Jason Woodward. I am shooting X10s for compound freestyle. What other arrows are best for field and feta? Right in your alley, big cat. Yeah, um, I assume he means pro tours. Usually, usually compound. No, he's guys saying X ten. Say he's saying X ten. So. They usually mean pro tour. Usually, but you know, I mean, you yeah. got some, you got some X ten top dogs out there like Rio. I would say uh, if he actually shoots pro tours now. Now, yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you are, because he had to go up what four spines when he switched to that <laughs> other bow. If you're looking at uh, field arrows, specifically field arrows. Now, it depends if you're talking NFAA or uh, World Field, but uh, and, and he says FIDA as well. I mean, ACE is an option. 
you you've got the best of the best right now. So really, any direction you go is stepping down a little bit. I would say. It, I'll, I'll tell you yeah. what. I'll tell you what. This is a non-conventional answer. Downselling, right? I want to see more people using ACGs because you can buy a couple dozen ACGs for the price of a dozen X10s yeah. if you shop around. And for field archery out of a compound bow, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, but that's a really good arrow. Yeah. Even the uh, if you're shooting field with no wind around you, if you're deep in the woods. Uh, oh, you could even go bigger. Yeah, you go like the Hex or the Lightspeed 3D. You know what? That's an underrated target choice because yep. it's obviously sold as a hunting arrow. But the Hex, what was our first question today? Somebody asking, um, you know, when are we going to make a small diameter, high-end, all-carbon target arrow? We do, but we sell it as a hunting arrow. <laughs> yeah, it's not super small. It's like a 18, 19 size, but it's small. It's small. Yeah, it's, it, it wouldn't be great in FIDA, but field it would rock because field doesn't hurt to have a little uh, little line cutting ability. Yeah. Um, you can get it with 100 gram point. It comes with, or you can you can get it with, G bushings to have a little back end protection. So it, it would make a good choice, really. What books do you all, Robert Swenson wants to know, what books do you all recommend for coaches and archers? Um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to do a little bit of keyboard tapping here to find it, but there's a book. It's actually a tennis book. It's a tennis book on the mental game of tennis. And Steve, you've got a couple of golf books you like, don't you? No, no. <laughs> I thought you were mentioning one a while back, but uh, nope. Here's the thing. Um, first off, books on archery. The classic is probably "Understanding Winning Archery" by Al Henderson. H e n d e r s o n. Al Henderson, who passed away a couple decades ago, actually uh, wrote what I consider to be the book on tournament archery mindset and the reality of dealing with equipment and how to be a better competitor and how to train. So understanding winning archery by Al Henderson is a classic that I'm pretty sure you can still find. Um, that's a good one. Rick McKinney's book, which the name of which I can't remember, but I think it is something like, I can't remember now what he calls it, but go on the internet, look up Rick McKinney and book. And it's published in like 12 countries. I think only three of which actually paid Rick to publish it. And um, try to find a copy of that because that's still a, a very good, solid uh, piece of work. Rick is an underrated coach, and uh, he put a lot of knowledge into that book. Another book that I like um, that's related to this is, of course, Lanny Basham's With Winning in Mind. And, you know, I know it's, I know it's kind of a cliche now. We, we, people talk about it all the time. Mental training is important. How many of you actually put time into mental training, though? If you're honest with yourself, I'll bet it's not much for the majority of our listeners. Yeah, probably. So With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham, it's not an archery book per se, but the man's a shooter, you know, rifle shooter, Mm -hmm. same mindset. So those are are three books that I think are pretty good. You have any in mind at all? No. But you're, you know, you're kind of self-coached. Yeah, I don't, I, honestly, I think it would be harmful to me if I felt I needed if I was at the point in my life where I thought I need to read a book this is just me speaking I don't blame anyone else for wanting to read a book but if I felt like oh I better read this book to help my mental game that would trigger something in my brain to tell me well you're weak already you know yeah now you've got the issue now that's and I've talked about this with Doug Denton he's the one who he enjoys a book like uh with winning in mind, the, oh, yeah. the Lenny Basham, but it, Doug's the, way, the hardest working guy. Yeah, the way I'm, know. the way I'm wired, you you can't tell yourself that you have the need for anything but what you've brought with you to the field. Yeah, so that's just how I am, and I'm not gonna, I don't know, I'm not gonna read something. Okay, and you know what? It's been working pretty successfully for you, I'd say. I don't know. Maybe maybe I should read it. Maybe I'd be better. I don't know. I, don't, I think everybody has room to grow, um, even you. Yeah. At least mentally. Oh, and, yes, of course. <laughs> wait, did I say that right? <laughs> All right. We've got a nice question here from Sarah. Uh, this came in via podcast at eastontp.com. And uh, Sarah is asking um, or stating, I'm a recurve archer who recently returned to shooting after many years out of it due to life happens. Back in the mid-90s, I acquired a bowstring made of a material called Dyneema Sensitive. I loved, all in caps, that string. It felt fantastic. 
By the time I needed to get my next bowstring, I asked for that again, and the product was discontinued. I've shot other varieties of Dodema since then, and they're okay, but not the holy grail of good-feeling sweetness that was the sensitive type. Could you please help me understand, if you remember that fiber, what made it so different? And is there anything similar on the market today? I keep hoping. I just don't have a budget to try out all the different materials out there looking for that kind of feel. Okay, Sarah. So I'm actually very familiar with this because the guy who's developed all of the fibers for Angel is the guy who owns Angel, and he's a very good friend of mine, Mr. Tamura. Yukio Tamura lives in Tokyo, and he spends a lot of time and effort to develop better bowstring materials. In fact, uh, you'd be surprised at what bow companies use his extremely expensive, by the way, uh, bowstring materials. Sensitive was developed in about 1993, if I'm not mistaken. And as you'll recall, and some of our listeners will recall, it had a sort of a teal color to it, a dark teal color. It was um, like all Angel Dyneema made by Toyoba in Japan uh, under license from DSM Dyneema. And it is plasma treated. It is actually surface treated by plasma so that it can actually hold the dye that makes it the color it was. Unfortunately, that same process makes it fuzz up like crazy after a few weeks of, or months of use. And that's why it's discontinued. It just fuzzes like crazy and gets all tangly and nasty after reasonably short time. Now, you got to remember, though, if you go back to the days of Kevlar, strings didn't last that long. So it's contextual here. You know, the, the Dyneema Sensitive um, actually lasted way longer than any Kevlar product, but relative to other Kevlar, or sorry, relative to other Dyneema products, not so much. So that's the reason that it's no longer available. Now, if you want similar feel, I agree, that's pretty hard. The other aspect of that stuff, and the other reason why it was the way it was from the standpoint of fuzzing, was basically no wax. There's no wax in that stuff. And so that combined with the spongy nature of the material is what gave it that that special feel that you've identified and the sound that you'd get from it. But today, there are better materials. And some of the better materials include Angel Majesty. Unfortunately, Angel Majesty doesn't have anything like the feel of the sensitive. It's like shooting steel wire, but it lasts and lasts and lasts and it doesn't move. So for a recurve shooter, Angel Majesty is really hard to beat. Now, BCY is making some brilliant materials and constantly pushing the edge of the envelope. Um, you know, and, and some of the newer fibers from BCY have good feel, really good feel. And so I'm going to suggest that you just kind of suck it up there, Buttercup, and get into the, into the teens here and, <laughs> and uh, get over the, the, the loss of sensitive. The loss of sensitive there. And you're talking to the wrong guy if you want to talk about sensitivity anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I'd never heard of that stuff, so that's interesting. I think um, for a short time, it was probably, you know, among top shooters, super popular. But the downside of it, as I described, was it just got fuzzy like crazy, and you couldn't keep up with it. Yeah, no so, durability. Yeah, but really good stuff from the standpoint of feel. So I understand Sarah's dilemma there. Um, we've got a question here from, let's see here. Oh, boy, this is a long question. It's got 15 bullet points on it, so I don't know if we'll get to all of them. S um, struggling archery parent is how it's signed. Oh, boy. <laughs> SAP. Okay. All right, so SAP, struggling archery parent. I'm a novice archery parent. By the way, the reason I, I'm going into this question, even though it's going to be a lengthy one, is because I think a lot of folks can relate to this. I'm a, I'm a novice archery parent. My 10- and 7-year-old girls shoot. The 10-year-old started a couple years ago and loves this sport, recurve target archery. I know it might veer. By the way, whatever you're doing with your mic, just just stop it because it just came across the thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, we're so easily distracted. We're like cats around We need here. headphone mics. Squirrel! Yeah, I agree. All right, So, um, but then you can't cough. We need a cough button. Okay, Mr. Amazon Prime, go shop for some. I will find these. Fine. All right. I thought it might veer into too much product pitch, but I'm wondering if we could spend a segment talking about arrows. Okay, so when she started shooting, the range had a selection of things already picked out. Quiver, arrow, case, Easton Jazz arrows. So she and her bow got bigger. We had to get longer arrows. She's shooting a Hoyt riser with ILF small limbs. 
I called Lancaster because the local ranges are biased to compound and hunters. The super big outdoor shops, Cabela's, Gander Mountain, are biased to the same. Not all not all Cabela's, by the way. Some Cabela's are starting to add Target stuff, just is as true. an aside, which is kind of cool. But probably not your Cabela's. Um, so she has some specific questions, but also knows there are things she doesn't know, so her questions may be incomplete. How do you crack the code on shaft size, and why are there so many varieties? Well, there are so many varieties because there are so many combinations of draw length and bow weight. And the code on aluminum arrows is pretty simple, actually. You have four numbers. Say we have a, um, let's just throw out a number, 1814, okay? What does 1814 mean? It's 1864ths in diameter to the closest 64th of an inch, and it's 14 thousandths wall thickness, about the same as about six sheets of paper, okay? So 1814 is simply a way to describe the diameter and the wall thickness. Now, in aluminum, that gives you a nice predictable outcome. In carbon arrows, in carbon arrows, your nomenclature on Easton carbon arrows is frequently done by way of the spine value of the arrow. The spine value of the arrow is really important if you want to know if you've got the right arrow for the combination of weight and length. I recommend you go to our website, EastonArchery.com, where you can find a lot more information on this as well as a shaft selector that can help you understand the relationship there between spine and weight and draw length okay second question why when do archers change from aluminum to carbon or hybrid uh when you're less likely to lose them in the grass it would be one answer yep does distance from the target influence the arrow choice yes sure absolutely if you're shooting indoors at 18 meters you can get away with big fat aluminum arrows if you're shooting outdoors at 70 meters you're going to want skinnier arrows and that's not necessarily to say you got to go buy x10s because we make all sorts of arrows Perfect one for your kid would be an Inspire. The Inspire arrow is a carbon arrow, small diameter. It's going to be offered in extra weak sizes starting next year. Yeah, if they're breaking a lot of arrows, you know, if yeah. they're breaking one per outing, yeah, Inspires are great. If, yeah. they're, if they're keeping them in the target, look at Apollos. Yeah. Okay. So that's that's a quick answer to that. Uh, and so yeah, indoor versus outdoor does influence the arrow choice. To go with your fourth question. Fletching comes in different sizes because, again, the right tool for the right job. Two-inch fletch for outdoor longer distance, four-inch fletch for indoor when you want the arrow to straighten out quickly and hit a relatively smaller target, okay? Feathers or plastic or spider veins and why? Feathers or plastic, that's weather-related as much as use-related. Feathers work great indoors for target archers. They don't work so great outdoors if you get damp or humidity. Spider veins are an advanced vein. It's Brady Ellison's brand of uh, mylar-based vein. But we can think of most all mylar-based veins as a category of long-distance outdoor high performance. Yep, less okay. durable. Spin wings, yeah. spider veins, um, sitar veins. What are they called, the official name? Excess wings. Excess, yeah. Um, and gas pros and Ellie veins and curly veins and by this time next week, there will be five or six other manufacturers yeah. from Eastern Europe. So the bottom line, the bottom line is you, uh, you apply the fletching to the intended use. Yep. And I would say if you're at that beginner stage, find something with some durability. Um, uh, you know, learning how to release the bowstring is going to create a lot of clearance issues initially. So keep that in mind. Okay. Feathers and, and veins are probably your best bet. Um, Another good question, which, you know, I think we really take for granted. I hear people talk about grains or grams. What is that? Okay, so grains is the traditional measure of weight in in archery. And when we talk about grains, one grain is one seven-thousandth of a pound, which should give you a clue as to what the term comes from. Yes, that was based on a grain of wheat back in the medieval days. (laughs) So one seven-thousandth of a pound is a grain. Now, points come in grain weight 120 grains by the way this uh becomes more complicated because in europe they use a metric system a lot of shooters convert grains to grams but grams are almost too coarse to use as a means of measure when we're talking about the tolerances for archery that's another reason why grains are still used today for archery purposes um helical offset what are these things how does your shooting hand affect this your shooting hand doesn't really affect 
whether you have right or left helical. A helix is like a um, the threads of a screw. That's a helix, okay? The shape that that describes, the way that it spirals down the shaft. So helical veins spiral down the arrow, not nearly as tightly as the screw pitch does, but the pitch, that is the rate at which it turns around the thing, that is limited for archery to maybe a third of the distance around the shaft. And um, you use that to get the arrow spinning and stable and is more popular and more useful for somebody who's trying to get a broadhead, which is a killing point for bow hunting, to stabilize. I hope I'm still making sense here. I think you're doing good. All right. Um, We're going to get through the rest of these. Do aluminum arrows wear out? How can you tell? If you see a crack, if you see a deep, deep dent, if it's bent, it starts looking like a coat hanger instead of an arrow, that's pretty well... (laughs) Otherwise, no, they don't really wear out per se. Why do some people shoot with a handful or less of arrows and others look like they have more than a dozen in their quiver? Uh, Personal preference, how much you got, money, (laughs) I don't know. Um, Since all of her arrows have to be the same, should I buy extra fletchings every time? Uh, Your arrows have to be the same in competition. That is, if you got one blue and two red fletches, all your arrows in competition for that end have to have one red and two blue. Correct. Yep. Had if you're having to refletch every time, if you're having to refletch every time, look into why. Yeah. You're not getting good adhesion or you don't have a good product. Or you have bad clearance and you're whacking the bow every yeah. shot. You know, so those are, those are things to look into. I think arrow length and draw length are related, but I don't see any common practices when I look out at the line of shooters. Actually, you do, but you maybe don't know where to look. The typical shooter is going to have about an inch to an inch and a half of arrow shaft past the pressure point at the bow hand okay and i know that might sound very complicated but if there's a plunger or an arrow rest on the bow not counting the point you're going to have an inch to an inch and a half of extra arrow sticking out in front so let's say you've got a draw length of 29 inches your actual arrow length might be 30 and a half I hope that all makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. And I hope that was useful. Well, it doesn't make sense when you start talking, you know, ATA measured draw lengths and things like that. Not going there. No. So hope struggling archery parent uh, got something useful from that. Let's see here. Ah, all right. This is uh, another, another question about the black hat. You're working on that. Oh, yeah. We have new hats coming. All right. Okay. We've got new hats coming. By the way, we're, we're just reviewing the catalog for the upcoming year. Is that in there? I didn't see that in there. I don't know, but you know what? We're going to have apparel online. It sounds to me like oh, yeah, that's it's going right. to be a little bit more available. We have a new website, yeah. so check yeah, for that stuff. Yeah, I don't know if you noticed this, folks. If you have a chance to go to eastonarchery.com. Eastonarchery.com is our target archery website. The, uh, the hunting website is eastonhunting.com. Well, now eastonarchery.com is a landing page. Right, so now you can choose... Yep. When you get to eastnarchery.com. Correct. So uh, you'll. Uh, it's pretty nice. The new website's clean, and, and uh, it looks good. It's, yeah. Uh, those guys worked hard to yeah. get that looking good. Should have a, a like a web store up eventually where apparel will be a little easier to obtain than maybe what it has in years past. All right. Uh, let's see here. This one comes from Tim. Stop me if we've already answered this one. I'm pretty sure we haven't. George and Big Cat, I shoot a compound bow and use the same basic setup for indoor and outdoor. 59 pound, 30 and a quarter draw, or 30 uh, and three quarter draw. Uh, Tim had a competition this weekend and struggled with the wind. Uh, It seems like his bow was moving more than some of the other competitors who shot higher scores than he did. His bow has a fairly large riser and he uses long stabilizers, 34 and 15. I'm a pretty big guy, though not by big cat standards, so it's not like the wind is blowing me around as much. Want to bet? <laughs> yeah, 34-inch stabilizer is a lot of stabilizer to have out there. Um, once that gets moving, it doesn't want to stop moving. Right. And if you don't have a lot of weight on there, it's going to move a lot easier. So there's, But there's more to this than just how much the wind is moving you. It's how you respond to it. Yeah, it's also... I mean, the, the wind is going to do what it's going to do, and you kind of have to learn to work with it. Um, a lot of people, 
initially when they're shooting in the wind, they try to fight it a lot. They, they try to you bear oh, down. Yeah, you're over aiming, trying you to get keep tighter. the pin in the center. You're or aiming wherever. harder. Yeah, you're getting more tense. The wind's pushing you around more. So there's two things about the wind. One, the wind is your friend because guess what? It's blowing on everybody equally. So the person who learns to master the wind has a big advantage. I mean that. Yeah, especially if you're not capable of super high scores. Second thing, yeah. Actually, wind is a bit of an equalizer in that regard. It is. Second thing, the wind has a rhythm. Normally, in normal conditions, the wind has a rhythm. It ebbs and flows like the, like the waves do on the beach. So try to learn the cues that tell you the wind's about to drop. You can hear it. You yeah, can you feel can it. it you can see it in the trees. I could predict pretty accurately in most tournaments that I've been to in places that I'm reasonably familiar with when the wind was going to drop and when it was going to come up just based on what I could hear. Right. And so, you know, try to try to practice in the wind. Yeah. Okay? I mean, try to practice in it so that it becomes a part of your game and try to play the wind. I, I I took this to extremes at one time. I actually took a stunt kite down to the field in San Diego, you know, at, when I was a RA down there, and I was flying a stunt kite down there to try to understand what the wind was doing at you know ten feet off the ground versus fifteen feet off the ground versus five feet off the ground, and you'd be shocked at the difference. It's a huge difference, and it was entertaining too. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he also asked, uh, you know, any equipment changes you would recommend. Not necessarily. I mean, if you can go to a shorter front bar with more weight on it, uh, that'll kind of get you the same amount of forward pitch, but it, number one, adds mass weight, and number two, gets some of that length uh, out there away from the wind. Um, do you approach your shot or execute your shot differently in windy conditions? Yeah, you have to You have to switch from being an, uh, a shot based off of aiming ability to a shot based off of execution timing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you got to learn – when to execute and not worry so much about aiming extremely tight. Now, obviously, we're talking about a situation where some folks have got a um, time limit. Yeah. You know? So you gotta you got to work within the time limit. But just keep in mind the fact – by the way, another thing that's very helpful <clears throat> is to stay within yourself on the line. You know, sometimes you're going to see people waiting for other people. In the wind, you just need to stay within yourself and shoot the shot. Don't worry so much about the person standing next to you. I'm not saying don't be don't be courteous. I am saying, however, stick to your own timing because you can get into serious time trouble if you do learn to play the wind and you're trying to wait for people to do their thing while you're preparing to shoot your shots. So, you know, focus, rhythm, and timing. Focus, rhythm, and timing. And timing is super important when it comes to shooting in the wind. Okay. We're going to wind this down fairly soon here. We've got a couple more questions, um, one of which regards your choice of release aid for hunting versus uh, target archery, Steve. Yeah, yes. Uh, it's, let's see, we got Bob here. He says, see, you use a hinge during your tournaments. Do you use a hinge for hunting as well? Do you switch to a trigger? Now, uh, you just came back from a bow hunt. Yeah, I definitely switch to a trigger. I like to have something strapped to my wrist and... So you don't lose the thing while you're uh, hiking in the woods? Yeah, and I'm not super concerned with being, you know, X-ring accurate. I don't need – you don't need that kind of accuracy hunting. So I can make one good shot with a trigger. You know, I can't can't go make 72 good shots with a trigger. But I could probably do nine or ten in a row, you know. So, no, I'm not so concerned about about the the release aid I use. I know I can – make it work so i do use uh, just a standard index trigger on a wrist trap uh, also curious steve's choice of arrow for redding in the opa uh past you recommended large diameter shafts for 3d i think i saw some skinny arrows in your quiver at these events yeah I'd, although they are 3d i really don't consider them 3d redding is a field shoot by all means yeah your long shot there is what yeah. 100 and something yards 101 yeah. yeah double what you'd see at most 3d tournaments yeah so redding redding is based off of nfaa hunter targets so the the diameters of those dots are are based off of that um and then opa is yeah it's a 3d shoot um would i try a larger arrow maybe the issue was if i remember right in the schedule opa was a week after reading or i or i had reading and then columbia and then i had opa i think it was so 
I wasn't about to try to switch anything. I had a great shooting setup at Reading. I knew I could just take it and, and roll with it at OPA, and, and that's what I did. Mm-hmm. Jonathan in the UK is asking, how can a person more easily decide what aeroshaft they want? Some companies have several shafts that are very similar in their lineup, if not identical, in terms of GPI, diameter, etc. And the marketing material is not always particularly explanatory. For instance, according to the information in the catalog, these and Hex and Torch appear virtually identical, and the bloodline is very similar. Thanks again for the uh, previous answer. I guess we answered a question for him before. Yeah. So, um, yeah, sometimes arrows are priced by how straight they are. And sometimes they start out as the same exact product, and then they're separated into a higher-end product and a lower-end product strictly based on specs. Mm-hmm. So here's the reality. When you make a large production of parts, let's say we make 10,000 arrows. Not all 10,000 are going to be perfect. So instead of throwing away the ones that aren't, we sell the ones that are at a higher price, and we sort the ones that are not into a lower-priced product. You get what you pay for to a degree. You're, you're not getting the perfect spec, but you're getting a pretty good arrow either way. And so um, now on the question of the hex and torch... That's strictly a function of one being highly decorated yeah, it's and, and has a uni. Right. And the other one is not decorated cosmetically, has no uni, by the way, has super the, tight tolerances. Right. The bushing we're yeah. talking. Yeah. Sorry. Uni. uni bush, as you would say in the UK. Yep. So uni on the, bushing, the, the torch, it's a uni bushing with an X knock. And on the hex, it's a, a straight push in H knock. Yeah. And again, it's a function of what are you going to use it for? What's your philosophy of use yeah. for this thing? And it's, uh, you know, you're talking about hunting product here, but the same applies. I'll give you an example. We have the Apollo and we have the Carbon 1. Basically, yes, some sizes of Apollo are custom, but basically the same design, okay? The Apollo has looser straightness tolerances. Fallout. Yeah, well, not exactly. Not fallout, yeah. An embarrassing number of Apollos are actually Carbon 1 quality, because we just need to fill the we have to fill the orders yeah. so we pull from what you know that's that's all production based stuff um so sometimes you sometimes you get more than you pay for with the, with the apollo yeah with the carbon one um you know we we hold a very tight tolerance for both spine weight and straightness and sometimes you get the benefit of that policy of selling you know the fallout as it were at the lower price so to go back to your original question though how do you pick well you've got to decide what's important to you, right? What we are selling you is an arrow that has a certain straightness, an arrow that has a certain known quantity for weight, an arrow that has a certain known quantity for performance in terms of wind, drift, mass, vibration, frequency, a bunch of other stuff. I don't expect every consumer to know what the meaning of all that stuff is. That's complicated. You know, if you look at the base of people who shoot archery as a a pyramid-shaped distribution, right? The very top of the pyramid are the people who really can leverage some of this stuff. For other people, they're buying, to a degree, a certain amount of confidence. Because if you know your arrow's a thou, and you know your, spine's, your spine tolerance is super tight, and you know your weight tolerance is super tight, well, guess what? You don't have to worry about your arrow holding you back from your performance. You can focus on your performance better. And that's, you know, that's a personal thing. For other people, they're happy with minute of pie plate, and they're, right. therefore they don't need to or shouldn't perhaps spend the money on a super straight, super accurate surgical precision arrow. They can do just fine and be happy in their form of archery at the level that they're shooting at. So don't just price to you know decide what arrow you want. Don't just go off the price. Don't just go off the specs. Go off your personal philosophy of use. If you want the leeway to lose a few arrows because you shot a field tournament, but you're not real good at estimating distance or whatever, buy the cheaper arrow. When you get good or you get serious or money's on the line, buy the more expensive arrow. That's that's kind of my perspective on that. Sounds good to me. So, um, let's see. I'm just going to do one more pass here at the Facebook page. Yeah, I've got one more here, Go ahead. too. Why don't you pick um, that up? Yeah, Paul Isinger, he says he noticed uh, at the Dakota Classic, a tournament we have here in the U.S. That was one in Yankton, right? Yeah. Yeah, Bruce's uh, tournament there. He said, I was wearing an arm guard on my left wrist on Sunday, but he did not see it on me on Saturday. What caused that change? Would a form change or something like that necessitate that switch? 
Uh, I'm pretty sure I had it on both days. Otherwise, I'd be hurting. But uh, sounds like he was looking though. Yeah, I yeah I I may have had it off for an end or two. I don't know. I doubt it. But on that particular bow, which was my teal one, um, I think it's the way I've got the stabilizer set up. And I've, I may have I don't know exactly what, but I think it's just pitching the bow into my arm a little closer and it's just nicking me every now and again which is uh something i've never really dealt with but the bow was shooting really good it first started doing it um at gator cup and i shot awesome there so i didn't change the bow i just continued to shoot it and it it shot well for me Uh, my other one my yellow one i'm shooting for field doesn't hit me so i don't wear an arm guard for that but yeah I, i i'm sure i wore it both days otherwise i would have probably had a bleeding arm um he also asked could i get steve's quick take on shot execution with a hinge how do i roll the release around a pivot point just using my back muscles Mm -hmm. Uh, i think too much is actually put into the back muscles here too much emphasis yeah people thinking it's it's done in the back should be thinking about your elbow or something the more you think about i think the worse it is but yes when you're trying to figure it out you can think of it in, a, in multiple ways. One is th- there's a few keys I would always give myself. One is imagine you have your release tied to a string that's tied to the target and you're trying to just slowly pull that target in towards you. Um, you know, the guy who told me that one was, uh, he, he said he imagined a, a pallet full of bricks and he was trying to pull the bricks and you want to keep them balanced, right? You you got to just easily build the tension. Yeah. Why don't you Why don't you elaborate just a little bit on that analogy, which you brought up back in podcast seventeen or so? That was your analogy of you're pulling a pallet of bricks. Walk us through the visualization there. Yeah. So, I guess imagine you have you know a pallet full of bricks and they're stacked up like Jenga tiles or something, you know, and you're trying not to tip them over. And they're behind so. you. Uh, they're in front of you. They're in front of they're you. They're at the target, right? Okay. So your your release hand is the hand you're pulling them with. Okay. So to me, it's a simple, you're building tension, right? You don't want to be yarding on the bow or pulling real hard initially because you got to get you got to get things moving. So it's a slow build of tension. So you're trying to move the pile of bricks without tipping any without over. Without tipping any over, yep. So it's a it's a build of tension and you fire. Um, and that's, that's mostly going to be concentrated on you know feeling that line going through your elbow and i don't think much about the back muscles at all i know when i first picked up a back tension release a hinge um a guy told me imagine trying to squeeze a beach ball between your shoulder blades and i I personally can't think of a a worse way to activate the release because at that point you're doing a whole lot of nothing back there in my opinion Mm -hmm. um you know, the long and short of it is if you got a handful of release and you're at full draw and you point your index finger at the target, it'll turn over really freaking quick and it'll fire. So that's the other side of it. You can, you want to build that tension so that you're not collapsing, but at the same time, you've got to get tension out of your index finger. So it's kind of an oxymoron, but one thing I've always said to people when they ask, how do you execute? I say, Oh, I pull harder and relax more. doesn't make sense, but really that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to get get the bowstring to move backwards while allowing a little bit of relaxation to creep into that and creeps a bad word to use there a little bit of relaxation to get into your actual index finger to help the release rotate around and fire i think smooth comes into play here yeah yeah thought of being smooth exactly and this goes back to something i was actually taught when i was playing hoops you know um i i had a, a coach in middle school who's a legendary guy in terms of basketball offense development and things like that his name was bus connor and he told me when you get the ball down low work slowly but move quickly and that made sense to me too or maybe it was the other way around maybe it was work quickly but move slowly Uh, i don't think anyone wants to move slowly but reminds me of uh colonel jeff cooper who was my firearms instructor he said draw quickly shoot carefully yeah and that's the same i i try to tell people like when we're shooting a team round you know, i was telling alex whiffler work quickly between the time you spend getting to the line and loading an arrow and then you have to be able to flip a switch turn it off 
and then flip a different switch and start your regular shop process, right? You don't want to be trying to hurry that, but, um, and that, that's off subject, but yeah, with the release uh, and just aiming and shooting in general, there's really no, no rush to it, but at the same time, you don't want to be lackadaisical because you'll be sitting there on the line and the longer you're holding it full draw, the quicker that shot's going to deteriorate and, you know, there, there is some timing involved there. So it's something you got to figure out and then you just work on doing it your way. Okay. Last question for the show today. And by the way, um, if you're enjoying the show, not enjoying the show, angry at the show, angry at me, <laughs> angry at Steve. We'd love to see your review, and you can review our show on iTunes. Please leave us a review, good, bad, ugly, indifferent, and that will help other people find the show. You can be angry with us, but really, you got what you paid for. Good point. <laughs> Did you see, I, I saw, uh, there's, you know, there's this uh, company that actually distributes the podcast. It's not actually Apple that distributes it. iTunes carries it and then redistributes it. Okay. But there's a hosting mechanism called Podbean. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We got an offer to start carrying advertising. They, they want us to start carrying advertising on the podcast because they figure we're just a couple of podcasters who need to make money off the thing, and we're up to enough people regularly downloading the thing that it caught the eye of whatever their system is that says, oh, these guys have X number of subscribers. They're eligible for advertising now. So um, thank you, Easton, for sponsoring the podcast so we don't have to bother anybody with too many advertising messages besides the obvious ones about contour stabilizers. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure our, our listeners wouldn't mind an advertisement here or there. How much are we talking? Well, I haven't even bothered to find out. I'm going to leave that with Nate because he's the money guy. Yeah. We'll let Nate handle this. Well, I but will. But if you start hearing uh, ads on here for, you know, Bob's Crab Pie or something, You'll know why. <laughs> you know? <Yes. laughs> I don't see it happening unless we get a cut. Uh, yeah, I, I would imagine the companies wishing to advertise with us would be very low rate. Well, yeah, okay, enough said there. <laughs> so, so the last question is, um, you know, we had uh, Clint went and made some special quivers for the Olympic team. Oh, yeah. And they're pretty nice. I mean, they're, I, I've got one, and it's, uh, it's cool. Super cool. And um, so we are getting quite a few questions from folks who saw the pictures of these guys and the lady, our good friend Mackenzie, who also won the uh, tournament this past weekend. Yep, she Mackenzie won. Um, they wanted to know, will these be available for sale? And how do I get my hands on one? And uh, one here about uh, willing to do some indiscreet things for one. <laughs> 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 so... Um, you know, and and will Lancaster have them, and uh, a whole bunch of other questions. Do you have any insight on this? Rumor has it, I, I guess. I mean, I mean, my my last contact with Clint about this was along the lines of, we're pretty seriously thinking about offering these things. Yeah, that was my understanding. So for sale, of course. Yeah, and um, so we have a October new product announcement that we do every year. I'm going to say that if we're going to do these quivers, it's going to be after January. So well in time for outdoor season. And uh, we'll keep you up to date. Yeah, maybe they'll... I will consider that to be our insider information for the podcast listeners. Maybe we'll have them around Vegas time or so. That would be awesome. Know. Yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. I mean, we might as well do it. People, people want it, right? Yeah, I think so. And, you know, the minimum order quantities and stuff like that are fairly big, but I don't think it's going to be... We've got plenty of Americans want to show off the stars and stripes, baby. But I was thinking, you know, all joking aside, I was thinking we should do a tricolor one for France. Yeah. Well, we don't have too many listeners in France, but I will bet that if you have a write-in campaign to podcast at eastontp.com asking for the tricolor on an Easton quiver, that'll catch the attention of the powers that be, which is actually us but that's neither <laughs> so <laughs> just so might there happen go. yeah so again if you got any questions send it to podcast at eastontp.com podcast at eastontp.com if you got a review complaint want your money back send a review to uh easton target podcast at itunes which is uh 
They don't make it easy to leave a review. I noticed that. I was going through the uh, thing the other day to leave a fake review for us. No, just kidding. And <laughs> no, but no, it's hard to even read the reviews, much less to uh, to put one in there. But uh, we do have we we've got enough reviews now that it shows up on iTunes. Okay. And they're and they're all very kind reviews. Everybody who's left a review has been very kind. So you know, obviously, we're due for a really nasty one sometime soon. But um, listen, I uh, again, we appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to the podcast send in your questions and and we just enjoy uh the opportunity to reach out and and uh, give a little back to the folks who are doing so much to support us so thank you very much on my behalf and for steve the big hat anderson and to show yeah and wait 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 i think next week we should start our new segment oh because it's the new season after all yeah what's the new segment bad google translations oh oh is it worth is it worth bringing up right now probably like if i open my email just right read, now just read the one line about onions oh well you know i will maybe I will, next time i will do that next time yeah but let's just say this okay let me just set this up for the next podcast if you live in kazakhstan <laughs> and you don't speak or write or read any english do not rely on Google to properly translate your request. No. Otherwise, you're going to be sticking onions <laughs> on the end of your stabilizer. End of show. End of show.